Good morning, Woodside Community Church. Like all over the place. I've got a lot going on today. It's very, very um, exciting. Um, welcome to our anniversary um, Sunday um, celebration. 134 years um, we're, we're celebrating of, of God's faithfulness um, here in this place. Believing in the sovereignty of God, um, believing in Christ's promise that He will build His church. Uh, we want to take this time. We want to thank um, God for what He's doing um, in this place. We want to give Him the credit for all the good um, that is happening here at Woodside Community Church. Um, so this morning, we're still going to be in the book of Mark. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, um, starting in verse 38. We're going to chapter 13, um, verse 2, page 849 there in your pew Bibles. But I want to look at this text kind of from the perspective of a church that is celebrating uh, 134 years of, of existence um, and see kind of what lessons that we can draw from it. Because this text is, it, it's a warning text, um, quite honestly. And I think um, it is a warning text that would be good for us to hear because I know that this text is one that I especially um, need to hear. Um, because, listen, let's be honest, things are going pretty well at Woodside um, Community Church right now. Right? God has been very gracious to us and He has blessed us um, greatly. Um, transitions from you know, one pastor to another often don't go very well. And by God's grace, this has gone very, very smoothly. Um, he has blessed this church with, with growth, uh, both numerical and spiritual. We've already added 17 members now. We have more to come here in the near future. Um, attendance is growing. Two weeks ago, we had more people in this room um, than we have ever um, had in this room, or, or so I'm told by, by those who have been here much, much longer than I am. The worship team is, is improving dramatically. The choir just continues to do an amazing job. Wednesday night Bible study is growing. We have like a million babies all of a sudden. I don't know if you've seen all these babies. They just started um, popping up. We're in a great place um, financially, and on and on and on. I could keep going through the good things that God is doing in this place. But He has been very good to us, and things are going very well. Right? Well, listen, God had also been very good to the people of Israel over their history as well. He had specially chosen Israel to be his people. He had amazingly blessed them with his presence and with his revelation of himself in his law. He had protected them. He had provided for them. They had experienced an unprecedented amount of blessing from God. But look where all of that blessing got them. Right? Just the day before our story, Jesus, remember, he prophetically entered into the temple and he kind of acted out God's judgment on that temple. He says the temple, the whole sacrificial system, Judaism as they knew it, was finished. Right? God's wrath was about to be greatly poured out on Israel because of what they had done with their blessing. They had squandered it. They had abused it. They had used it only for themselves. Great blessing and success resulted only in absolute collapse. Right? And listen, we've sadly seen the same thing happen in many churches. Right? Vibrant, thriving churches that were once very successful now stand empty, or they're dwindling, or they're lifeless, and they're making no impact for the kingdom. So how do we guard against that same fate here at Woodside Community Church? Right. That's what I want to look at for these next few minutes, using Israel as kind of our, our warning, as our, as our example. But listen, I've got to give credit where credit is due. I have the great privilege of getting to bounce sermon ideas and then work through texts and figure things out with VJ every, every Sunday. So he really kind of set me in the right direction 
um, with this text. So this, this outline, it, I just stole it from him. All right? He gave me permission to. Um, but he, he was talking through it, and I was like, man, that's excellent. Took it. Uh, so give, if you like it, give VJ the credit. If you don't, blame VJ. Um, so it's VJ's fault. Um, but, just kidding. This passage is a warning. Right, it's just very clear. I'm going to explain to you why this passage isn't exactly um, what you think it may be. And the basic structure of this passage is that if this happens, right, then this will be the result. If this is what characterizes your church or your religion, then this will be the outcome. And this is what will happen to us uh, if we become like um, what Israel had become. And I love this because this passage demonstrates why we preach expositionally, just verse by verse through books of the Bible. Right? We didn't plan this text for Anniversary Sunday. We're like, oh, this would be the perfect text. We'll give them this, this warning. No, this is just the next text um, that we're coming to. Right? And God lined things up perfectly where I think we can really draw a lot from this um, on our Anniversary Sunday. Right? So we're going to see how if religion becomes external and exploitative, then God will end it. Right? That's exactly what happened to Israel. We're going to see the externalism of their religion, then we're going to see the exploitation of their religion, and we'll close by looking at the end, um, at the hands of God, of their religion. All right, so look down here at your Bibles there, starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Follow along as I read. This is God's Word. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Um, Father, we thank you for this church, 134 years, Father, in this, in this neighborhood. We, we thank you for allowing us to be um, part of that history. And Father, we pray right now that you would let this passage and let Israel um, be a warning to us. Father, we want to be here for another 134 years, faithfully serving you and proclaiming your good news. So, Father, I pray that you would protect us. Father, that you would prevent these things from happening um, to us um, in this place. Father, open our minds and our hearts to, to what you have for us um, in your word here this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've just seen this, this long series of questions, right? Just attack after attack after attack. These, these religious authorities are coming after Jesus. They're trying to test him. They're trying to trap him. They, they, just, they want an excuse to arrest and kill Jesus. Well, Mark says that after his last answer last week that we saw, no one dared um, to ask him any more questions, right? Jesus had so soundly answered and defeated his opponents. His, his wisdom and his authority were so evident and so superior that the people were just were dumbstruck. They had nothing left to say. And now Jesus is on the offensive, 
Right? Jesus is fighting back more aggressively here than he has before because he knows that his time is drawing to a close. And he takes very seriously the danger that these false teachers um, bring. Mark 12, 38, 440, these, these kind of three verses that we have is kind of this condensed little summary of Matthew chapter 23, right? And in Matthew 23, we see Jesus like we have not yet seen him before, right? It seems like he's been, you know, meek and mild Jesus, long flowing hair, he's very nice, he's been answering all these, these questions and attacks, and he's, he's very calm. But in Matthew 23, and in our kind of little few verses, Jesus just absolutely lights into the religious leaders, and he just rips them apart. Right? Six times he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A seventh time he says, Woe to you, blind guys. Woe. Right? And this is a word that just means basically nothing to us today, right? Because we don't, we don't use this word. Um, so it just doesn't have any sort of force or authority with it. But it means in the Greek to pronounce severe judgment. It means to be cursed or damned. It is like saying you are damned, you hypocrites. Right? That, is, that is the word that Jesus is using. It's a very serious and weighty word. He is very clear what he thinks about false teachers who lead people astray. Right? Look at what he says to the scribes in our passage. They, they walk around in these nice, long, flowing robes, and they like greetings in the marketplace. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. In other words, they love recognition. Right? They love being the center of attention. They love the praises of man. They, they just want to be made a big deal of. Right? So they're, they're walking around in these big, long, flowing robes. So in other words, they're wearing clothes that are very different from the clothes that everyone else is wearing. Right? They, they're specifically wearing these clothes so that they will be set apart. To make it very clear to everyone around them that they are very important. And listen, that still happens today. Right? Just, just look at the Pope. Right? I mean, honestly, like, what is that guy wearing? Right? It's, just, it's just completely impractical. Like, How would he run in that if he needed to run or something? Right? You know, I don't, popes don't run, but they're wearing these ridiculous big long outfits which kind of say, look at me. Right? It's, it's, I'm important. Recognize that I am important. Even the regular priests, they have to wear these special robes so that everyone will know, oh, that's, that is a priest. Right? Well, listen, isn't that exactly what Jesus is speaking against here in this passage? Right? It's all external. It's all about appearance and ceremony. Look at my fancy clothes. Right? I am clearly special. Recognize my importance. That's what the scribes wanted. Right? And it was their, their special clothes that kind of led to their desire for these greetings in the marketplace. They wanted people to know they were important, and they wanted people to acknowledge it to them. Right? When scribes walked down the street or when they entered a room, right, it was expected that everyone would stand up and rise for them in honor. Jesus, he expands on this in Matthew 23, 7. He says, they love greetings in the marketplace and they love being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. They were obsessed with titles, right? They demanded to be called rabbi or teacher or master, right? They, they wanted other people to know that they were more important than them. 
And listen, we too live in a culture that is obsessed with title and rank, reverend, pastor, doctor. Oh, hi, Mr. Jones. It's Dr. Jones. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to, didn't mean to offend you there, right? Listen, we're, we're just all about titles and rank and hierarchy. And listen, I'm, I'm quite, frankly, I'm, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with, with, with titles sometimes because I know my prideful heart. I know how close I am to these, to these scribes and how easy it would be to get into this kind of this, this mindset for this desire for praise and recognition and honor. Right? So, whatever you call me, don't call me reverend. Right? That, one, that one just really makes me uncomfortable. Right? If you've got to call me something, you can call me pastor. But you know what reverend means? Right? It means the, the revered one. It means the one who is deserving of reverence and honor. Right? That's not me. I am not, I am not to be revered in any sort of way. Um, so, so you know, don't call me reverend. Um, call me pastor. Call me Matthew if you want. You know, that's, that's my name. Um, you can call me whatever. So, so titles, right? They were obsessed and they loved titles. Excuse me, son. Call me, call me rabbi, right? you, you got to call me that, right? And, and they wanted the best seats in the synagogue. Synagogues back then didn't have chairs and they didn't have pews, right? So everyone... Almost everyone had to sit on the floor, except for the scribes. Right? The scribes had their special benches kind of at front on the sides and in the front reserved for them. So then absolutely everyone kind of had to look at them and would recognize that they were sitting above them. It'd be like if I put some sort of like throne kind of like right here. And I just sat in that throne for like the whole service. Right? Everyone's just kind of looking at me and I'm sitting above everyone. Have you ever watched TBN, kind of the, 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 the Christian station TBN? And sometimes, I, do they still have this? They used to have these big, ornate purple and gold thrones that they would sit on on one of the shows. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you sitting on a big purple and gold throne? Right? It's, again, it's like, look at my throne and be impressed. Right? It is the externalism of religion. And I think that the lack of actual spirituality almost always leads to increased Symbolism, right? The less reality there is, the more symbol you are going to need. Right? The two things I think are inversely related. The less you actually have on the inside, the more you are going to need on the outside as a way to try and kind of hide the deadness and to fill the hole. Now listen, just look at, at Catholicism. It is an amazing amount of symbolism and show and ornaments. Right? It's all so fancy and so expensive, and it is very impressive looking um, from the outside. Right? But, but in the words of, of Shakespeare, methinks the lady doth protest too much. Right? It, it seems like they're trying a little bit too hard. It seems like they have something to hide. If there's nothing on the inside, you're going to have to keep piling up more and more and more on the outside to try and hide that. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This church will fail if we allow ourselves to become more focused on the externals than the internals. And then all of this goes way, all the way back to the basics, to the very core of what it means to be a Christian. Do we define a Christian by what that person does and how they look? Right? Has our Christianity become no more than moralism? 
well Christians, they, they dress a certain way. They obviously don't have tattoos, right? They don't drink or watch um, rated R movies. They are obviously conservative Republicans. You know, sometimes they, they go to church, they, they own a Bible. They don't read it that much, but you know, they at least they own a Bible. And on and on. These these lists of things that people look like and we do that we sometimes try and say, Oh yeah, he's a Christian. Look, look, look at him. Look at look at the things that he does. Do we define what it means to be a Christian by external things? How would you answer the question, are you a Christian? For some reason, people in church get really offended by that question. They get all, they all get offensive. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. I pray sometimes. I, I tithe, right? That is the externalism of religion. Here are these things on the outside that you see that I do, which demonstrates that I am a Christian. We cannot allow this to happen to us as a church. We cannot measure our success based upon how good the worship team gets, how strong and big the choir is, and how many people we can fit into this room. Listen, none of those are bad things in and of themselves. We want to do things excellently. We want a lot of people in this place. But those things cannot be how we determine how well we are doing. Right? Religion is concerned with the external. God and the gospel are concerned with the internal. Yes, we are growing numerically. But are we growing spiritually? Is there sanctification happening? Are people becoming more like Christ? Are people starting to care more and more about the things of God? Are we really starting to love and cherish the word more? And, and this is the big one for me. Listen. I honestly don't care how many people come, right? That's a lie. I, I really do. I actually care. But, but I don't necessarily um, care if you're always here. I don't really necessarily care if you think my sermons are interesting or funny or engaging. Are you growing in your knowledge and your love of God through His Word? Because if you're not, then I am failing at my job, right? Do you read the Bible? It's really that simple, right? So it's a really easy, simple question. Do you call yourself a Christian and never read the book that claims to be God himself speaking to us and revealing himself to us? Because listen, if you don't, right, that could be a sign that your religion is largely external. Right? Do we care about God and his word in this church? Or do we care more about growing the church and, and programs and, and events? And now listen, I hope this doesn't offend anyone. I'm sure it will. Um, I'm not trying to guilt anyone. But this is an honest question that I want you to answer for yourself because I don't, I don't know the answer, right? Why can we get 120 people in here for church, but about 10 for Sunday school and about 12 for Wednesday night Bible study? It's just, it's just a question. I'm just posing the question. Why is that? Like, why, why is that the case? I, I know that we're all busy, but we all make plenty of time for the things that we care about, for work and parties and, and TV and, and relaxing and all of these things, right? Does God really only deserve about an hour of our time per week? Listen, is your Christianity something that you do for about an hour on Sunday mornings? Or is it more? Is this an event that you come to about once a week? Or is this just like an integral, kind of intimate part of your life? Are the people around you here just some nice faces that you see once a week? Or are they part of your spiritual family? And listen, again, one of the best ways to tell, if, um, to see if your faith has become only external, 
is to examine what you do, not at church, right, with lots of people around, but what you do at home by yourself with your free time. Right? Do you spend regular time in prayer and reading God's Word? It really, it's that simple, right? If you don't, right, if your faith consists mostly of what happens here in front of others, right, listen, then your faith may only be external. Right? Religion emphasizes the external. Right? What do we emphasize? Right? Because God and the gospel emphasizes the internal. It emphasizes the heart. It emphasizes what he does to change us and to make us more like him and to want to seek and pursue him. Right? External versus internal. Right? Notice one last thing in these first few verses. It seems really strange and random. Jesus says that the scribes devour widows' houses. What in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus explains that to us in verses 41 through 44. All right, listen, here's where things are going to start to get a little bit crazy. Right, I, need you to, I need you to pay attention because I'm about to preach this in a way that it is never preached. Right? Because everyone preaches this passage the same way. It's the widow's offering. She puts in two pennies. Oh, and those two pennies were so much more than all the rich people um, put in. Because everyone, every commentary, every pastor says the same thing. This passage is about giving. It's not about how much you give. It's about the heart behind your giving. Give sacrificially like the poor widow. Listen. I'm all about giving. Giving is good. I want to preach a sermon on giving. I want to show you why it's important and why we should all be doing it. But listen, this text has nothing to do with giving. Okay? This text has nothing to do with giving. Why? I'll say it again. Context is key. Right? You've got to read a passage in light of what's before it and in light of what is after it. Right? So let's step back for a second. Right, weeks ago, I already made a claim. Remember the so-called cleansing of the temple? Remember? Not a cleansing at all. Right? We said it was more like the cursing of the temple. Jesus wasn't trying to purify the temple. He wasn't trying to reform or fix the temple. He cursed it. He was declaring an end to the temple and everything involved with it. Remember, yeah, the temple episode was sandwiched in between the, the episode of the fig tree. Right? The fig tree explains what's happening in the temple. Jesus doesn't fix or heal or purify the fig tree. He kills it, right? He curses the fig tree. He says it is finished, right? So Jesus comes in and he curses the temple, right? And in the middle of the temple episode, Jesus declares the temple to be a den of robbers, right? So Jesus says the temple is finished. He calls it a den of robbers. And then he says the scribes are terrible. Why are they terrible? He says because they rob widows, and then, all of a sudden, here comes this little story about this poor widow giving the temple all of her money. Coincidence? No. Context is key. Because what is the very next thing that Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 2? Do you see these great buildings, the temple? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This little widow story is the last straw for Jesus. Right? Jesus has had enough. Right? The temple and its dead religion preys on and exploits even helpless poor widows. So the system must be ended. Right? This is not a passage about giving. Right? Think about it. What does Jesus say? Oh, look at the nice old lady. She gave her last penny to a corrupt system that exploits the poor while the rich get richer. 
Right? Is that really what Jesus is encouraging? It doesn't make any sense. Good job, old widow. You gave all your money away. Oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to destroy the thing that you just gave all of your money to. Right? It doesn't make any sense. And notice that Jesus says nothing positive about the woman's actions. He doesn't praise what she has done. It's just a simple statement of fact. Verse 33. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Think about it. Is that the kind of giving that God encourages Give away your very last penny and go home with nothing to buy food and with nothing to provide for your family. Of course not, right? That's just bad stewardship. Yes, we are supposed to give generously and sacrificially. We all probably need to be giving more than we are. But if this passage is about giving, then apparently we're also supposed to give away everything that we have. And again, it's not like she's giving money to the church Right? She's giving her money to a corrupt religious system that Jesus is declaring to be finished because it doesn't worship him. It would be like me encouraging you all to go to the nearest mosque and give all of your money in support of the spread of Islam. Right? That doesn't make any sense. That would be very bad pastoring. Don't go and do that. Jesus says she gives everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Why does he emphasize that twice? Everything. And all, right? What was it that he accused the scribes of? Devouring widows' houses. That word devour in the Greek means to consume completely. It means to eat up and take absolutely everything, all that she had to live on. So this poor widow duped into giving all of her money to a corrupt religious system that makes rich men fatter is the last piece of evidence in God's court to seal his case against Israel and the temple. She is a victim of religion. This is the exploitation of dead religion. And it is the exact opposite of what true religion is supposed to be. Right? James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. I can read you verse after verse from the Old Testament that talks about God's special concern for the less fortunate. And there were three classes of people that he always mentioned. Orphans, widows, and foreigners. Right? Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God. God cares about the need. So any religion, any system that does the opposite, no matter how impressive it looks on the outside, is a system that is opposed to God. Judaism at that time was a, a religion that exploited the poor. Right? And this sadly has continued to happen in many religions throughout history and even today. And one of the most famous examples basically started the Reformation back in 15. 17. You have a very wealthy, extravagant, rich Roman Catholic church, and they decided they want to build you know, St. Peter's Basilica, right? one of the most impressive buildings in the world. You know, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, he paints the ceiling, beautiful, you should go see it. But how did they build it? Right? They built it on the backs of the poor and exploited poor. How? With indulgences. 
right? Indulgences were like forgiveness or pardons for your sin that you could buy. Right? Here's a dollar, and you get forgiveness for a dollar's worth of sins. Right? And men traveled all over Europe promising the poor that if they would just spend a little bit of money, then they could be spared from time in purgatory. Right? Listen, purgatory in Catholicism is like the waiting room. Like where you have to go and be purified of your leftover sins because Jesus' work on the cross wasn't enough to purify your sins. So you've got to do a little bit of extra work in purgatory, suffering and being purged, purgatory, right? So you buy an indulgence, you spend less time in purgatory, you get to heaven quicker. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal, right? That sounds like a, that's good. There was this very infamous, infamous guy in Germany. His name was Tetzel. Um, and he absolutely manipulated the poor and fleeced them out of their money. It was this man, Petzl, that really set off Martin Luther. And that kind of was kind of the, the spark to begin the Reformation. Well, Tetzel once said, this is what he would do. He was in like a used car salesman. He, he, he would say to these poor people, he's like, he said, Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, Have mercy on me because we are in severe punishment and pain. You could save us from all this with just a little money, right? How could the poor, uninformed poor resist that? My poor mother is writhing in agony. If I just give my last dollar, it'll be a little bit less agony. Right? That is the exploitation of religion. Religion deceiving the poor, taking their money, and getting rich and wealthy and extravagant off of it. Right? And listen, this so happens today. It's all over Christian TV. Right? And this is, the, this is the prosperity gospel that is preached by televangelists. Right? Last year, I'm from down in kind of Charlotte, North Carolina. My brother's a pastor there. Last year there was this big expose on this tele-evangelist tele who lives there. His name is Todd Koontz. Has anyone ever seen Todd Koontz's TV show on, uh, it's still on, right? Well, here's what Koontz would do. He comes on in his show and he says, for just $273, that was the magic number that God had revealed to them. For just $273, right, God will give you a double blessing, a life-changing miracle within the next 90 days. But wait, for the low, low price of $1,000, God will give you a triple blessing, even more, right, than you imagine. And then with a straight face, he looks into the camera like it's some sort of infomercial, and he says, but you gotta do it in the next eight minutes. After this eight minute times is up, then there's no more chance for double blessing. There's only two minutes left, you better call now and get your money in so you can get 30 seconds, people, and he counts it down, right? So, oh, you missed, you missed your chance for the double blessing, right? That is the very obvious manipulation and exploitation of religion. And I went and checked. This guy is still on TV, the GEB channel, whatever that is, right? That's why I'm warning you guys to stay away from most pastors on TV, right? These prosperity guys are getting rich by fleecing poor, nice old ladies for all of their money for the promise of a blessing and miracle. For your generous gift, we'll send you this miracle holy water straight from the Jordan River. I'll send you this magic handkerchief, personally blessed by myself, if you just send me $100. It is all a lie. There's nothing biblical about it. It is all for money. It is all exploitation. And I strongly believe that Jesus will pronounce woes just as severe against these prosperity gospel guys who get rich by deceiving the poor. They will receive their greater condemnation. That is the exploitation of religion. Religion that preys on the weak and the poor to elevate the powerful and the rich. Now listen, I don't think we are exploiting widows at all here at Woodside. If I ever say anything to the effect of, give me $1,000 and you'll receive blessing from God, 
Jerry, please fire me right away. Now, you, I'm giving you my permission now. You guys can fire me if I ever say such a thing. Right? We are not exploiting widows. Right? But are we doing the opposite? Right? Are we doing what Jesus, what James says there? Are we caring for widows and orphans and those who are less fortunate than us? Is our community better off because we are here? Right? How are we serving each other and those that are around us? Now listen. Don't hear me wrong. Our absolute priority and the mission of this church is to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Right? But that does not mean that we shouldn't love and serve people in other ways as well. Right? So my prayer, as I pray through this and ask the Lord's guidance in this area, I pray that you would pray um, for this as well. That God would give us wisdom about how to best do that. Right? How we best kind of serve others around us. How we best um, meet needs and take care of poor, the poor and widows and orphans around us. Right? We, we need to figure out how we can do that well together. Right? So, the externalism of religion and the exploitation of religion. And what does that lead to? Right? 13, 1 and 2. Look, teacher, wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus has pronounced a very severe and a very clear end to religion that is only external and that exploits others. Judaism was finished. The temple was going to be destroyed about 40 years later and it would never be rebuilt again. Right? And, and uh, the result will be the same for any religion or any church that follows the course that Judaism took. Right? We must let Israel be a warning to us. God does not care how impressive we look from the outside. And He will hate it if we somehow become a place that neglects those around us. Right? What does God want? Right? 1 Samuel 15.22 Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Micah 6 eight. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Obedience, kindness, mercy, justice, walking with God. Right? That is what we are to be about here in this place. And how can we do any of those things? Only by knowing and applying His Word. By teaching, singing, praying, preaching, discussing, memorizing, and loving the Bible. Do we want to be successful in God's eyes for the next 134 years and beyond? Then we need to cherish His book. And in doing so, we won't be able to miss the fact that the Gospel's focus is not us, but it is God and how we can love and serve others. It is not about the outside or the externals. It is about the heart. But remember, Jesus said back in Mark chapter 7 that we have a heart problem. It's, it's evil. But, but the good news is that God has promised to do something about our heart problem. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Not external, but internal. 
God and His amazing grace has given us new hearts through the work of Jesus Christ. He has saved us through His death and resurrection when we did not deserve it, right? Unmerited favor. That is what grace is. Guys, we don't deserve to have any success in this place, right? We don't deserve it. We don't have any claim on success. We can't say, any, God, look, look at these things that we're doing. You must give us success, right? We have no right um, to claim those things. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve anything good from God. But by the grace of God, we have all three. We have success and salvation and much goodness. God has done it, right? He gets all the credit and He gets all the glory. So it is my prayer that, that Woodside Community Church, by the grace of God, will always be a place that is all about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Right? May we always give Him all the glory and all the honor. May we always point people to His goodness and to His grace and His power to save sinners. Right? And may we do all of that by always holding His word precious and striving to do everything that we can according to His word. Right? We don't want to be external. We don't want to exploit people. Right? We want it to be internal. We want to love people. And we want to serve people. And we want to do it for the glory of God. Right? Let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you um, for this hard word, um, Lord. Um, Father, we, we thank you for giving us warnings. We thank you uh, for giving us a picture of what will happen if we become focused on ourselves and on how well we look from the outside, um, Lord. And if we forget... Um, to love and serve others. But Father, I pray that you um, would protect us. I pray that by your grace, you would prevent those things from happening in this place. Father, make us a people, Father, who have been changed internally um, by your grace, um, Father. And as a result of that change, Father, we just want to, to spread um, that good news. We want to love and serve other people because you have so loved and served us. Father, I pray that we would be about justice and kindness and mercy and walking with you um, in this place. Not about how, how we look or how well I can preach or how well we can sound or not, how, not about numbers and external things, but Father, about, about, by how well we are making disciples and how well we are pointing others to you and how well we are honoring you um, with what we do in this place. Father, we can do none of that on our own. Um, so we need your spirit um, to work. Um, Father, we could... Um, we can do everything perfectly and fail miserably, Lord, if you're not in it and if you're not behind it. So, Father, we ask um, that you would continue to build and grow this church, not for my glory, not so that we can feel good about ourselves and what we're doing, um, Father, so, but so that you would be honored and so that more and more people would get to know you, um, Lord, and would be saved um, by your grace. But Father, we do just want to thank you um, for saving this church and preserving it, Lord, and for, for 134 years, I'm um, using it in this community. We thank you for allowing us to be a small little part of that, um, Lord. I pray that we would see that as a privilege and an honor, um, Lord, and that we would love the opportunity to, to work and serve and continue that tradition on here. Father, bless this community, glorify your name, and save sinners um, through the work of, of Woodside Community Church. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.